Hey, Lucy. What's up, Tim? In the movie Test of It, a mother tries to keep her family together in the aftermath of a nuclear attack. As the father of a new baby who grabs everything within arm's reach and throws it on the ground, I too think I understand the value of arms control. Tim, I think you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear counterproliferation for a living. I am joined today in the podcast studio slash Zoom with Lucy Steigerwald, contributing editor of Antiwar.com and former podcast guest from our fun episode on the Fallout video game series. Lucy, welcome back. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. This is going to be way less fun. <laughs> yeah, it's a, glad it's a lot less interactive uh, because the movie Testament is not one that I feel like immersing myself in. Yeah, same. Yeah, it's great to have you back on the podcast. Longtime listeners would remember you from this Fallout video game series episode, like a three hour long uh, marathon through all of the different Fallout video games. We're not going to go that long this time around, but I'm glad you're back because of your great work you've uh, done on the Stag blog. Your blog you have a particular project. Is it called the Apocalypse Project, where you, you, you review nuke movies and other kinds of apocalyptic media? Yeah, that's what I started calling it. And I've left it by the wayside writing-wise for a while, but I have I have a, a lovely backlog of um, video games, books, and movies that I um, need to get back to. I guess technically I was doing all apocalypses, but nukes are kind of my favorite mm. Uh like you, I, I would say. Well, 2020 is the year to get these kind of projects back up and running. And one of the ones that you did write on is one of the movies we're here to talk about today, which is the 1983 movie Testament, which I didn't know this started as a PBS TV movie. But people like the script, so it got a little bit more money. We're not talking a lot of money here. We're still under a million dollars. But it got a limited release in the theaters during the same year, where it was pretty popular to have a movie about nukes. That year, you had The Day After on television as a big TV movie event that people still talk about today that scared Ronald Reagan and convinced a ton of people in the nuclear nonproliferation field to get into this line of work. You got Silkwood with Meryl Streep about an, a nuclear radiation accident. Got Special Bulletin, another TV movie that we've covered on the podcast. Uh, and also War Games, which everybody has seen, even if you're not a, a nuclear war enthusiast. So this is the story of your average family trying to survive a nuclear attack. This seems like the, the plot of a lot of movies that we've covered on the podcast. But this time, there's no mushroom cloud. There's no blast damage. It's just a struggle to stay alive, to stay civil, good to your neighbors, and the kind of the family trying to deal with radiation sickness, isolation, and which I think is one of the strongest pieces of the movie, the crippling uncertainty uh, about what's happening and whether or not that will tear apart their community and their family. Why did you want to come on and talk about this one? Okay, so this one is one of the more upsetting movies I have ever seen, um, more upsetting the first time around. At some point years and years ago, my mom could not remember the title of this movie, but the something, we like to talk about depressing historical things, depressing fiction a lot. Thanksgiving's right around the corner. That'll be fun. <laughs> she, um, she was like, oh, there's this movie where there's like a mom trying to take care of her kids and there's like a nuclear war and it's just really, really sad. I remember she said that. Hmm. And then a couple of years later, I was like, mom, remember that? you? Uh, yeah, no, it's called Testament. 
And this was when I was already on my weird self-study on the on these things, which was kicked off by actually watching On the Beach with my parents. Hmm. This one is, I sometimes get annoyed by sort of apocalypse movies where you don't know anything that happened because sometimes there's this contrivance. Hmm. But this one really works, I think, the lack of knowledge does. Yeah, there's not a lot of people in lab coats explaining what's going on, <laughs> or there's no uh, very stirring speech by the president of the United States or saying, here's what's happening and here's why we're doing what we're doing. No, it's just, imagine you're living your average <laughs> your average life and then all of a sudden you're cut off from everything and you just don't really know what's what's going on, which is probably how a lot of people would uh, would experience it. And I think that's what drew the director and writer of this movie, uh, Lynn Littman, to this. Uh, you pointed out to me something I didn't know either, that this is actually based on a short story called Our Last Testament by Carol Amen. Uh, this was published in Miss Magazine in August 1981. And I guess the director read this story with her son and just kind of had to direct it. She's also this director. She won an Academy Award for her documentary short number, Our Days, in 1976. So she's pretty well capable of, of kind of handling something like this. Uh, I thought she did a pretty good job. What this also has got a pretty good amount of people in this movie who have got a you know really strong talent for portraying these kinds of things. Why don't you talk about some of the people that are in this movie? Well, I mean, the most distracting is Kevin Costner, because <laughs> yeah. he's obviously the most known commodity, but he has a small upsetting part as a young father in this, and he does a very good job. One of those movies where I almost wish that nobody was recognizable at all, mm -hmm. because... I'm trying to think of a, a comparison. Well, uh, maybe it's because we are not in, in the United Kingdom, but I, I know the movie Threads, which covers this uh, ground pretty well. There's a lot of people that are from different kind of soap operas in the United Kingdom, but in general, it's a lot of actors that you would not necessarily, if you was an American audience, know who they were. I think that's, pretty, that's pretty effective. Meanwhile, The Day After has Steve Gutenberg. <laughs> yeah. it's... I mean, The Day After is still upsetting, but Steve Gutenberg and John Lithgow? Or someone, no. Yeah, someone it's got a bunch that? of people from different, different, you, you'd you see them and you'd be like, oh yeah, that's a, that's that guy from that TV show or that movie. <laughs> and that's very I'm, distracting. Like, it's really hard to take serious what's going on when you're like, I saw you in Police Academy. Well, yeah, I know. Something about Steve Gutenberg just seems like a, but I mean, I started with that and I thought it was very upsetting until I saw Threads and mm -hmm. um, Testament. I think Testament and Threads are kind of warring for most upsetting nuclear movie from different avenues because threads is like hitting you over the head with a bat and testaments like squeezing your arm until it mm. falls off or something this is good let's save this stuff for for the end because i want to make sure people know because if they maybe they haven't ever seen testament but they that they've seen threads because we mentioned it on the podcast i'm very sorry that if you watch threads because i recommended it <laughs> That is an apology movie. I, yeah, so I, I do not want. I don't want that on my conscience. Um, but the other people that are that are good in this movie, Jane Alexander is the star. She plays Carol, the mom. Uh, she's a four-time Academy Award nominee, including for this movie, Kramer versus Kramer. She's got a, a part in All the President's Men and another 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 good movie. I can't remember the name of it, but she's pretty good. Uh, particularly good in this movie. William Devine plays the dad, um, not in the movie a lot, but he's very center in terms of the, the story. The other thing I know him for is he played President uh, James Heller in the 24 TV series. 
Oh. <laughs> and we've got a bunch of really good child actors. A lot yeah. of good supporting cast members. Not people that have gone on to do, you know, huge. It's not like uh, Drew Barrymore or, or um, Leo DiCaprio kind of child actor to big star role. But they are really good in this movie. Yeah, I think the youngest ki- kid um, maybe did the most. He actually looked the most familiar to me of the kids. And he's, I think, had a decent career. He played mm-hmm. Ryan White. The, the kid who who died of AIDS, like a TV movie about him, I think, a couple of years after this. Ooh, this kid just can't catch a break. In. <laughs> yeah, right? I was thinking that. <laughs> Yikes. Well, so according to Box Office Mojo, uh, it's always good to kind of figure out where we like these movies in our new policy working community. And then for you, the the interest of it being a, from the, the pop culture, media, film, TV analysis uh, piece. You know, it's always good to see Maybe as this movie didn't didn't, uh, connect well with the broader audience. Well, at least according to Box Office Mojo, this movie made around $2 million at the box office with only a $750,000 budget. That is so small. So it's pretty, pretty decent return. It didn't have a huge release in terms of like number of theaters. It gets an 82% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes with an audience score of 74. So it seems like the movie is fairly well received by critics and by, and by people who watch it. I could, 74 sounds about right to me. For, for audience, yeah. Because yeah. they would, I mean, critics, I would, that's almost a little low for Yeah, critics. you would think it'd be higher. I don't think there's a lot of critics on Rotten Tomatoes in terms of like the number of people that have reviewed it or at least have submitted their reviews. It's only like 11 or 12. So let's get into the discussion here about the episode itself. And while we do, I have two main questions I wanted to kind of think about uh, while we go through this. The first one is how effective is a movie about nuclear war that doesn't really show any of the usual movie cues shorthand that we tend to see? Mushroom clouds, explosions. Can you still tell a, a movie about nuclear war without any of those traditional signposts? shorthand stuff and secondly what would it take for a movie like this to have a similar impact at least on how it did on us today uh, what, what would it be like what would the after story have to be uh so let's run through the plot of the movie as usual spoiler warning if you haven't seen this movie from 1983 it is available not on i've seen it available for renting on different streaming sites like amazon prime um it's pretty cheap dvd if you want to get it uh, i think it's like around ten dollars or so i don't know how you ended up watching it um i read on amazon i swear it was briefly on prime and then went back to being uh, a pay one especially if you're going to watch it once which you probably only will it's mm-hmm. it's certainly worth three bucks there are definitely times in um, at least american history the last couple of years where there'll be a peak of concern about nuclear weapons and then all of the movies that are about nuclear war will get on amazon prime for free streaming <laughs> as part of that service like for a while I saw like war games and a bunch of uh, I saw threads at one point on there for free streaming. And, you know, every once in a while, that kind of stuff pops in and it goes away. So I usually use that as my metric for how anxious people are. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. That probably is pretty telling. Um, All right. So let's let's go into the movie itself. Um, I'll start us off and then, uh, you know, throw it your way. It was a day like any other. Televisions glowed, radios blared. Breakfasts were being served. Children were playing. Everything was as it should be. When suddenly, it could never be that way again. (laughs) 
So the movie opens on the Weatherly family. They're your typical nuclear family living in the suburbs of a fictional town of Hamlin, California, which I take to be just right outside of San Francisco. I think at one point I saw someone mentioned that it's like an hour, hour and a half outside of the, the, the city, outside of the Bay Area. Uh, you got mom, uh, whose name is Carol. You got dad, whose name is Tom. And you got two sons, one younger one named Scotty and one older one, a bit older named Brad. I kind of take him to be, what, like 11, 10, maybe a little bit older than that. Um, I'm terrible with children's ages. I'm actually really terrible at it, too, and I blame homeschooling and TV. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say more like 13 or 14 with him. There, there is an older daughter named Mary Liz, and I, th- I take her to, I guess she could be like 15, 16. That all kind of works out. Something like, yeah, in the neighborhood of those. The music's very uplifting. It's kind of like a bit of a Hallmark TV movie. You think, wonder what the story is going to be about. Because it really, <laughs> it's just a family running through their normal, everyday concerns. They get a lot done before they have to get to school. I, as someone who struggles these days just to get the kid to daycare before starting telework, I don't know how they have the energy for all this stuff. They're cleaning the house. They're feeding the kids. They're getting ready for Scotty's school play, which is going to be a production of the Pied Piper story. They're talking about running out of toilet paper, forgetting their wallets before they leave the house. One of the main scenes is that, I guess, the dad and Brad go on a bike ride every morning because the dad is a real exercise enthusiast, really wants and really wants his son to, to be able to do this bike ride up this really steep hill. Brad's not able to do it that morning, but the dad's like, okay, well you go back and I'll just keep going on my route. Yeah, the dad's a little overbearing. They're talking about like, you know, what they're going to get Brad for his birthday, even though it's like <laughs> a bunch of months away and whether or not Brad's going to be ready for the draft and like, but that's several years ago, but it's... It's just a lot of anxiety is being thrown at you, but it's nothing existential dread, nothing particularly worrying. But, you know, it's the kind of worries you would have as, as that part of that family. I think the, the one thing that I wanted to mention is that the dad, at some point on his bike ride, meets these guy named Mike and his son Hiroshi. It's a dad and son that run a gas station uh, nearby, and they, they're making some plans for the weekend to go fishing. What about Carol? What's Carol up to that morning? Carol is kind of run ragged, it seems like. And there's like, I think there's some nuance. There's some nice nuance with her and Tom where there's like love, but she's getting a little chronically annoyed with him. Like Mm -hmm. she, I don't know, she's kind of like not getting the help she needs or like there's, you know, there's like, it sounds like we're, we're about ready for like mom giving a like, listen, I need some more help around the house or like. (laughs) I need like a a date with you, husband. Just like pay more attention. Like you know, like it just feels sure. like that's what we would have been leading to in 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 like the boring suburban life that these these poor characters deserve to have. Absolutely, yeah. the dad basically has all this time in the morning to go on a bike ride, put on a suit to go to work, and while the mother has all of this other stuff that they have to do including getting ready for Scotty's uh, school play, Mary Liz playing the piano. Uh, all kinds of stuff. And I, I guess um, the reason why they're putting on this Pied Piper play is because the name of the town is called Hamlin, which I don't know the Pied Piper story all that well to that level of detail. The story takes place in uh, Hamlin, some Hamlin, United Kingdom, Hamlin something. Um, but that, that's why they're telling that particular story, it sounds like anyways. Well, that makes sense. I didn't even notice the town name. But at the end of the day, everybody's kind of sitting around trying to watch television. The TV's not working. I think they're trying to watch some Sesame Street or some cartoons or something. And there's too much static on the uh, on the bunny ears. So Brad's like hanging out the window trying to get the antenna working again. And then mom is listening to the, the answering machine on a tape, little tape thing. And dad leaves a message saying, hey, he's going to probably be late for dinner. Then later on, he says, actually, no, I'm going to be able to make it. I'm excited uh, to see you all. But he's still like an hour away. He's not home yet. 
And then suddenly, this is where the movie becomes a nuke movie, right? The the TV news breaks on. There's a newscaster pretty pretty quickly and frantically saying, This is San Francisco. We have lost our New York signal. Radar sources confirm the explosion of nuclear devices there in New York and up and down the East Coast. Ladies and gentlemen, this is real. This is... There's an official emergency broadcast to tell people to stay at home and don't use the telephone because emergency services are going to need the telephone. What happens? The, the telephone rings and then Carol immediately picks it up. I think she's talking to her mother uh, and says, you know, hey, mom, I don't know what's going on. And then we get our big, bright, yellow flash outside the window. Carol grabs the kids and everybody gets down, ducks and covers. Ducks and covers. And the windows, yeah. And this is really the, the only special effect really in the movie. And this is traditionally where we would hear things like, well, there are some sirens. I think we hear a little bit, some air raid sirens. But the window glass doesn't break. We don't get the usual cues. There's no mushroom cloud. There's no flash and things catching on fire. There's not even really smoke or anything going on. Because it sounds like the the town itself of Hamlin was not hit by a nuclear weapon because it wasn't a strategic target or anything. But it's close enough to San Francisco where it must have received um, some kind of flash or, or something. But anyways, people felt what was what was happening. I think in the short story, they mentioned an earthquake. And that's always scary to someone in California, when even when it's not nuclear related. This is it. And then kind of life returns a little bit back to normal. The families go, they pour out into the street and they start asking each other what's happening and if everyone's okay. And this is where we meet Kevin Costner. You want to talk a little bit about what Kevin Costner's up to at this point? He doesn't do a lot these days, Kevin Costner, but he's still sort of distracting because most people are going to be either vaguely or not at all familiar with our main cast. And suddenly the guy that was one of the bigger movie stars, you know, decade or two ago, suddenly mm-hmm. pops up as a like a, a ridiculously young, uh, brand new father. Him and I guess his wife have a new baby, which... You, I suppose the viewer should immediately know is a bad sign, but maybe they don't quite know yet what kind of movie they're watching. Yeah, and uh, I think this might have gotten Kevin Costner excited for for doing apocalypse movies, right? He's done <laughs> Between Waterworld, which is a, a bit of a climate change story, and then you've got um, uh, the Post Postman. Is that what the name of that movie is? Yeah, that's um based on a David Brin novel that I vaguely meant to read. I think I have it on. I have a Kindle of that. Um, hmm. Is that nuclear at all? I never, I haven't, I've seen it, but I can't. Ret- that's a good question. I mean, that's very post-apocalyptic. And it's like, all I can think of is like, there's like a, a Gilmore Girls dialogue referencing <laughs> it about how like Kevin Costner tells us once there was something called the mail. So like, I don't know. <laughs> oh, it's probably just, yeah. That, that movie came out a little bit too soon. It could come out these days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it would be pretty, pretty telling. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, Kevin Costner is funny in this movie because you, I bet if there was a, a re-release of the DVD, it would say Jane Alexander, Kevin Costner, star in. It totally would. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's not really in this too much. So the, everyone's outside. They're trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, Tom is still not back yet, but Carol tells the kids he's probably on his way, right? It's still daylight. Maybe he's still on his way, but power is out pretty much everywhere. It's... It's unclear if it's the the electromagnetic pulse that's always in these kinds of movies, um, which can short circuit uh, electrical items, or it could just simply be the power is out because a lot of the places where the power plants were, which would be the targets, uh, have been destroyed. The neighborhood really goes to the one of the local leaders in the community, Mr. Abhart, him and his wife, uh, Rosemary. 
Um, they get together. They have an old transistor radio. So he's like an old ham radio guy, an operator. His wall, I love his wall. It's got a bunch of like different um, call signs from all around the United States. So he's clearly into this community of, of calling, talking around on, on the transistor radio. It looks like cities all around the, the country are suffering from the EMP. Seattle, San Francisco, Sacramento, Portland, all of the Southern California, which is where I grew up, is kind of sad to mention. He says basically everything's out. He can't get a hold of anybody there. At some point, he says he can't reach anything east of somewhere, Keokuk, Chicago Iowa. or something. Oh, yeah. The, okay. I've been to Keokuk, so, Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, we're in trouble, all of us in the, yeah. in the U.S. But it sounds like at this point, the community is, they're they're talking about going to be able to support each other. Um, Abhart and his wife mentioned that they can always be a point of contact for everybody. They're going to get some outside, you know, news. We'll bring it in. They have a lot of food. They're willing to share the food uh, and organize kind of a community response. So it sounds like at least people are willing to assist and help everyone. It's not like immediately there's looting and riots and fire and, and all kinds of chaos breaks out. This community of people that know each other pretty well are, are still basically at this point trying to kind of keep everything together. Which I like to see because I'm I'm an optimist, but I always think there should be more immediate upset. I mean, you expect almost that this movie is going to have at least some like looting and, and, and a little more sort of bad panicked behavior. And there's a, there's a little bit, but it's a very small amount. It gets there. You know, I think you want to start, you want to start happy and then, then I guess you get the contrast of how things get worse a little bit later. But anyways, I wanted to point out here, since you got me reading the short story, which I think is, it's very effective. It's only around 11 pages or so. Here's how the short story describes the, the nuclear attack. So this whole thing is written like a journal that Carol's writing throughout this process. It's, it's somewhat alluded to in the, in the movie where she says she's journaling and she, you see her a few times writing stuff down and you don't really see it later, but it's, it seems to be the kind of narrative thread uh, for it here. And so this is the journal entry for the nuclear attack scene. March 23rd. Tonight, as I fixed dinner and wrestled with self-pity because Tom had phoned saying he'd be late in San Francisco, the entire eastern seaboard was wiped out. I had the TV on in the kitchen, tuned to the evening news from New York. When the video went off there, there was a bright pop, and the screen went dark. I moved to jiggle the knobs, expecting the usual apology about technical difficulties. Although now that I think about it, the sound was off too. No static, no flickers, nothing. Suddenly, the picture came back, with an excited San Francisco announcer shouting, Listen, listen, we're being attacked. The voice rose and broke. Radar sources confirm, many eastern cities have already been destroyed. The east, I thought panic rising in my throat. My brothers Atlanta home, Mary Liz and Brad, our older children, stared at me and the television. If only Tom were here, maybe he could tell us it was a stunt, some Orson Welles trick for an audience reaction. But as I looked at the TV crew, I knew it was no prank. The announcer was hysterical. Over and over we could hear, massive retaliation, and then the same flash on the screen, only this time we could see it all around us. An eerie light coursed and flickered hideously. Tom, I screamed. Tom, was that San Francisco? pretty good short story i like the way that they describe the panic nature of it but also these are the kind of the thoughts you would have going in your head you wouldn't be thinking about you know soviet u.s uh relationships and and, and strike zones and and mega deaths and you wouldn't be breaking out your calculator trying to figure out what type of blast radius and bomb damage you might be getting you're just kind of concerned of oh eastern seaboard what do i know about that my family my family right. is there i see a flash outside oh gosh is that my family is that my husband is that someone else that i know um mom mom's continuing to journal in the movie now it's um it's a couple days later 
the kids start complaining about some things, right? Like the dishes, things have dirt on them, they describe. Yeah. Um, Mom wipes it off. I mean, you've been watching enough uh, of these kinds of movies to know what that is, right? Well, yeah, I I don't remember if I immediately caught that the first time. I certainly did um, this time. Dirt. It's not regular dirt. Yeah. Probably Fallout. Probably the... It is dirt. It's probably also a mix of concrete and whatever else was caught up in the explosion. If it was a detonation that was near the ground and then pushed all of that stuff up into the air, into the sky, and it has to fall. And it sounds like Hamlin is, is in the fallout zone. And that means that all of that dirt is exposed to very small particles of, of radioactive material. That's the byproduct of one of these detonations where you detonate nuclear material in each one of these little specks. If you eat it, you consume it. If you get it on your skin, if you're exposed to it for long periods of time, some pretty nasty stuff could happen to your cells. Scotty complains that the milk tastes bad, which is a pretty pretty bad sign. Uh, Mom thinks it's probably because the fridge is not working anymore. But then Brad, of course, he must have seen something on TV or maybe in one of his his classes they talked about this. But he says that radiation can get into cows, right? So then that's why Mom thinks that we're they're just going to drink powdered milk and, and the other stuff that Dad had put away for camping trips. Yeah, the cow thing, I mean, I guess that makes future milk kind of not, not going to happen. Mm-hmm. I was also distracted by wondering why if the milk... <laughs> is warm they're drinking it because do you really want like food poisoning at a time like this you know if it's uh it's one of those things because they're not living in rubble they still have to try to keep as much of a semblance of their normal life as as they can right they think it maybe this is like a big earthquake it's a big natural disaster it sucks that san francisco's gone but we're okay right so let's just kind of keep life together as long as we can until help from somewhere comes in it's kind of my sense of it anyways. Oh, I agree. I'm just being um, pedantic when I think like in if I was trying to keep up normal life, I'd throw out the gross <laughs> milk. Definitely. Yeah. Was... Well, kids like milk, right? <laughs> and this is this is a, one of those things that it radioactive material getting into milk was and continues to be, but really was a huge point in the anti-nuclear movements mm-hmm. uh, in the 50s and the 60s. Strontium-90, which is a byproduct, a uh, radioactive isotope that comes out of a nuclear detonation um, or any nuclear reaction, even a, a disaster at a nuclear power plant, strontium-90 would be released. It's pretty dangerous if it gets into your body. It's a little less dangerous if it's in your skin, but once it gets into your into your system, it's pretty nasty. It's a bone seeker, uh, meaning that the radioactive isotopes goes through calcium receptors in your bones. Exposure to strontium-90, say through milk, or even if it's just in water or if it's in food that you eat, it can kind of really cause serious problems like bone cancer, digestive system breakdowns, kidney failure, a bunch of really nasty stuff. And it was a really huge campaign point in the political race, the presidential race between Lyndon Johnson and Barry Goldwater in 1964. A lot of people tend to know about the Daisy ad, right? The right, one, right? You want to describe the Daisy ad? It's the most famous political ad ever made, probably still. And mm-hmm. they tell me it only ran once. It was against... Goldwater and it's the little girl picking daisies and just singing a happy little song and then this <laughs> countdown starts and then well the implication is oops we dropped a mushroom cloud right on this adorable tyke's head four five seven six six eight nine nine zero
Yep. And don't vote for Barry Goldwater because he's right. gonna make he's gonna be causing this to happen because he's a was a bit of a firebrand. He talked about preemptively launching an attack against the Soviets because it's gonna happen anyway, so we might as well do it first. And you know, Lyndon Johnson was no peace Nick. I was gonna say, it's right? like, well, so we got peace Nick LBJ, whom by odd. These are the stakes to make a world in which all of God's children can live are to go into the dark. We must either love each other or we must die. What he had done at least was work with, uh, you know, with Kennedy previously and, and others to do a limited test ban treaty, meaning that we would no longer test nuclear weapons in the atmosphere. We decided we're going to stick those things underground, test them underground, no longer test them underwater or in, in an atmosphere. And because strontium-90 was getting in uh, to a lot of in the air and it was going to a lot of people and making them sick in the immediate area, but really anywhere in the United States. If you have a bottle of wine that's supposed to be from before 1945 and you want to test whether or not the bottle is actually that old, one of the ways you can test it is you can bring it to someone who can do a, a you know an isotope scan and can see whether or not there's cesium. Whoa, really? And you can see if, if it doesn't have cesium, which is a byproduct of a nuclear detonation, then you know it was bottled before we started testing nuclear weapons. Wow. Because that's how the stuff just kind of gets everywhere. Yeah. It's like chemistry or any sort of chemical stuff. It's all a matter of degree, how much of this stuff is going to be in your system. But it's we've all got cesium in us because of how much... We've been doing these nuclear tests. Strontium-90 got into one of these campaign ads, the same type of ads that the Daisy ad was. This ad was called Ice Cream, and it's just a, a child licking an ice cream cone. I think it's vanilla ice cream, while the narrator is uh, talking about the dangers of Barry Goldwater wanting to do more nuclear testing in the atmosphere. Do you know what people used to do? They used to explode atomic bombs in the air. Now, children should have lots of vitamin A and calcium, but they shouldn't have any strontium-90 or cesium-137. These things come from atomic bombs, and they're radioactive. They can make you die. Do you know what people finally did? They got together and signed a nuclear test ban treaty, and then the radioactive poison started to go away. But now, there's a man who wants to be president of the United States, and he doesn't like this treaty. He wants to go on testing more bombs. His name is Barry Goldwater. Pretty, pretty scary stuff. We covered, uh, which feels like 10 years ago, but four years ago, uh, right before the 2016 presidential election, we covered the Daisy ad on our uh, podcast. So if people want to go back and check that out. We talk about ice cream. We talk about uh, daisies. How about in the movie, the family talks a little bit about radiation uh, concern. Scotty doesn't know what it is, but he, he asks, like, what is it? And no one answers him. The kind of ironic thing is that Mary Liz hands him a banana and says, here, eat this instead of asking questions about radiation. And it's ironic because bananas are actually, because of the potassium, they're naturally radioactive. You can hide low levels of, of radioactive material in a box if you cover it with bananas because it produces wow. a false alarm with a radiation detector. <laughs> It's all fine. Bananas are perfectly fine. I love bananas, but they are naturally radioactive. They're they're undergoing spontaneous nuclear fission. Weird. Uh, but it's a lot of depressing stuff. Let's get back to less depressing things, like uh, how Larry, one of the neighborhood kids, decides to come live with them, and their family takes him in because Larry's family, both of his parents, were in San Francisco, and kind of we don't know what's going on. But it is nice that the the mom is not only trying to take care of her her three kids, but she's also starting to take in other kids from the neighborhood. Uh, it, it is nice to see some of that. But when you mentioned earlier, 
wanting to see people starting to panic, not really wanting to see them, but you would normally expect that in a movie. Why don't you describe what happens at the church when the town kind of gets together for a meeting? When I'm watching this, I think it's going to be like the show Jericho or things like that, where nobody ever really just flips out. But I always forget that this movie has this really good pacing where I have an ebb and flow of terror and panic. Mm -hmm. And the town meeting, like, there's all this talk about how they're going to keep things together and they're not going to loot stuff. I guess the guy with the pharmacy says there had been looting a little bit. Like, we don't see that. There's the one guy who starts describing some of these symptoms of radiation sickness. Here's what we all have to look forward to, folks. The town, the town doctor, yeah. He mentions uh, dizziness, gastroenteritis, fever, vomiting, skin sores, hair loss. Uh, some pretty pretty nasty stuff. And then what else? There's uh no they they talked about school being canceled. I think they still kept up going to school for at least a little while. The teacher says they want to you know keep everybody keeping on. There's no food at the supermarket, but now the police are there. The police says that they're going to open up communication soon and and keep looting to a minimum. Uh, Kevin Costner says that um, he says that people probably aren't going to come and help them. So let's organize some sort of civil defense. But then the mother says something really sad. The mother of the newborn. She says that the baby wouldn't take the breast milk this morning. They started to throw up the breast milk. And she asks the doctor um, if that, like, it might be normal, right? And, like, there's anything I can do about that. And he just straight up does not answer. Yeah, the doctor does, does not, it's not super helpful. People argue whether or not they can even organize civil defense or can, is can food safe? Everyone's arguing over what's going on. And there's a lot of panic. Uh, gas is running out. There's long lines. Uh, Hiroshi's dad, Mike, is out there with a rifle uh, trying to manage the long queue of people. He's giving away gas to his regular customers. Mike telling Carol they get free gas because, not just because they live in the town and like someone nearby maybe doesn't, it's because he particularly knows them and they've been kind to him mm. and to his kid who I think has Down syndrome. Um, yeah. And obviously the, the, the little kid actor has that as well. It's the same thing in the short story is the, the the son i think the son's name in the short story is teddy and not hiroshi but it's the same situation i think yeah he's uh mentally challenged um and talks about how that mike mike says this nice thing because carol says we'll take your gas because we appreciate it but you need to come over and we'll repay you with dinner and mike says you've already paid this thousands of time previously being nice to to me and, and to hiroshi so you yeah you're right you, you do get the sense that there's people relying in times of crisis on their community relationships that they may have formed civil defense huh? yeah 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 i like it the best the best civil defense <laughs> is a good kindness offense so yeah we, we see a few scenes of like grocery stores uh, people lining up for food you see the civil defense logo which is a, a triangle with a c and a d uh, in the middle of it kind of around there so it looks like it's a little bit organized except it takes four hours to get any sort of food people are, are bickering about line cutting and and all this kind of stuff but you see the police there under a uh, gun uh, making sure everything is is in order. We get this little quick scene where people are donating extra batteries for, I guess, radios or just in general because they're probably not going to be any new battery shipments. Uh, Duracell's not dropping off any more supplies these days. But then we get this scene where it, I, I really like it. It's Brad, one more last second, playing with one of his little electronic games. I think it's like a spelling game. Him trying to, to play with it before he gives the batteries away. But then the same thing's happening. We get the town bully, this kid named Bill Docker. Uh, he steals some batteries. Kind of a jerk. So he's someone who's not being nice and 
in Civil. They absolutely cast an actor who would be the bully in any 80s movie oh, you've yeah. ever seen, which I find slightly irritating, but also hilarious. He looks like one of the, the bullies from Power Rangers. I don't know if you watch Power Rangers in the 90s. Oh, it's but... been a long time. <laughs> yeah, he looks like uh, Bulk and Skull from the Power Rangers TV show. The one thing I like about this movie is it's not like there are big, sweeping, epic scenes of conflict and battle. It's just very low-key throughout the entirety of the movie. Even when awful things happen, which is about to start happening, um, really bad, it's always just this, it's just mundane because of the, how much of the suffering is going on. And nothing really peaks too high or too low. It's just kind of awful all around. But you do get these little moments. Brad finally makes his big bike trip. It looks like he's he's getting into better shape, the kind of stuff that his dad would always want him to do. He shows up to Mr. Abhart's home and volunteers to help out with the radio and to start relaying messages back and forth, checking in on people. This is one of my favorite parts of the, the short story is how Carol and the family decide to start visiting people that are sick. Kind of stuff you would do these days in, in during coronavirus. You know, checking in on neighbors. You don't have to go in their house, but maybe you just kind of knock on the door, maybe drop off some food. We have a, a, a neighbor in our community who's, who's very, very old, and she doesn't have a lot of family on this particular side of the country, so some of the other neighbors always are constantly checking in, kind of to the point where the, the neighbor is complaining about the number of times people knock on her door. But it's, it's, it's nice to kind of see that in a community. At the same time, we're also getting reports from Mr. Abhart and his radio that there's blast damage in Santa Rosa, California, a place right now in our real life that's being hit pretty hard by the fires uh, that were happening in California. So things sound, are not sounding great. People, No one's coming to help, basically, it sounds like. 11 days later, Carol's watching some old movies on her on her TV. Uh, looks like some old stuff like out of a VHS tape or something. She's, she talks about wearing her husband's sweater to get the smell. I think she's pretty, at this point, convinced he's not coming back. And this, I think, is one of the saddest scenes in the story. The mom decides, let's, let's uh, perk everybody up. Let's go for a picnic. Let's take what food we do have in our very bare pantry. And let's go for a picnic. Let's go to the place where we planted a bunch of trees when all of the kids were born. Then let's go look at the trees. Let's see how big the trees are. And when they get there, the tree is dead. Radiation and blast or whatever bad things are happening have killed the tree. That's very foreshadowing. She mentions particularly Scotty's tree is dying. We do also get reports that people are leaving town. The doctor has left town immediately, which is kind of a jerk move, right? But the doctor's <laughs> gone. And there's a bunch of people that are starting to leave. But if you happen to do stay in town, you get to watch the school play, the Pied Piper story. Some of the kids, they say, can't make it because they're sick, but the play goes on. Um, you want to talk about the play a little bit? I'm familiar in general with the Pied Piper story. Did you know a lot about it beforehand? This is, these, this is a really huge black hole for me in terms of pop culture or these kinds of stories. Yeah, I wasn't super up on it, but I know it's been used in sort of... In the context of other stories, in the, um, okay, so in the Anne of Green Gables series, in the final book, like Anne of Green Gables is older and her kids, like World War One happens mm -hmm. and her one kid ends up, like he goes to World War One, even though he was kind of a pacifist. It's kind of a weirdly pro-war book. It's a bummer. But he writes <laughs> a poem that you don't actually see, but that it sort of like becomes a thing in this world. It's called The Pied Piper. And it's supposed to have been about how like the Pied Piper's calling and like that's why we're all going to war. And you don't get a great sense of like what the content would have been, but... And th th that book is from, you know, decades before this mm -hmm. movie. So just like, I know The Pied Piper is used 
I almost, I did already have sort of a more meta association with it than it ever being, you know, the original story that it is. And the way it's used in Testament, it, it almost could be heavy handed, but it's so kind of, it's, it's pretty damn smoothly integrated. Hmm. You know, the panning over the little kids and stuff could be just like punching you in the face, but it's, I don't know. They just, they make it work in a way. I guess the story is, is that there is a town called Hamlin. It's overrun with rats during some kind of plague, and the mayor hires the Pied Piper, and I think Pied means someone that's like wearing an outfit of many different colors, but he's a piper because he's got a a magic flute. He's paid, basically. Hey, here's a contract. You get rid of the rats, we pay you this certain amount of gold or some sort of uh, valuable object, and the Pied Piper goes and does all this stuff, but the mayor and the town folk, they refuse to pay, and the Pied Piper gets upset changes his uh his tune on his and his uh, flute and he, instead of just getting mad he gets even and sings that song to lure all of the children away from the town in different versions of the story either the children are kind of led away to a mountain to live out their lives away from their family or they're led into the same river where all of the rats drowned it's pretty it's pretty awful stuff but i guess the key thing from the play in the movie is and the mayor says, oh, my son, he's gone, he's dead. Oh, what have we done? And the Pied Piper says, your children are not dead. They will return. They are just waiting until the world deserves them. Boy, is that just yeah. summing it all up, isn't it? Pretty much. The politician. I just, <laughs> the politician, like, makes a deal and the deal breaks down and it is because of his selfishness. And then all the children are gone because of his selfishness. And not just all the children, his. So now it's right, finally affecting his, him, yeah. right? Speaking of children, uh, we, we see our, our friend Kevin Costner. He's kind of mindlessly walking down the street uh, holding a, a cabinet drawer, like a an old wooden cabinet and one of the drawers from it, really walking down the street like a zombie. Carol runs into him and asks, oh, what's, uh, what's the shelf for? He kind of learned eventually it's a casket and it's a casket for their baby. The one that previously was sick and throwing up milk it's passed away from probably radiation sickness. Kevin Costner mentions that they've been told to conserve wood and because they couldn't find a box that was big enough or small enough, this worked out pretty well. This is one of the sadder scenes in the movie, I think. Kevin Costner says, we thought we were the lucky ones because the bombs didn't really fall on us. We thought there would be no more bombs and there haven't been. The war seems to be over, at least from Hamlin's perspective in terms of the active conflict. But, you know, their baby got sick and it died. Kathy, the mother, the baby, she's pretty depressed. She blames herself a lot for breastfeeding the baby. You know, it might have been contaminated. They talk about boiling the water that they would have used for formula and other things to keep the baby safe. But they may not have known this. Boiling water doesn't do anything with radioactive fallout. It's not like a bacteria You have to like filter out the radioactive particles so they weren't getting good information. Ultimately, we find out that Kevin Costner and and the wife, they leave town. They get in a car and drive away. The family, Carol and Brad and Barry Liz and Scotty, they decide to stay. Still waiting for Tom, I guess. Or just in general, this is their home. They're not going to leave. Pretty sad. Any any thoughts more on that? He does. I mean, again, you're like, oh, that's why you became a big actor. Because you did such a... Yeah, I mean, the whole scene and just... I don't know. It's just... It's really good. I I hate it. And it's, it's, it's really good with the drawer and everything. With the boiling water, though, again, I keep thinking why you, you don't get a scene of them just looking up what exactly they should be doing in this, you know, after this event when when things could be contaminated. You, you know, you had the doctor near the beginning talk about radiation sickness. 
you had Brad talk about radiation getting into milk, but at the town meeting, you don't see sort of any directive. I almost want a scene like in the in the show Jericho, which clearly was influenced a little bit by this and probably the novel Alas Babylon. They're both about being sort of the perfect, in a sense, distance from nuclear strikes where, you know, you're safe, but there's there's obviously there's repercussions from, from this happening. And there's a scene in the episode where they all have to hide from the fallout, where they're looking in the library and all they see are 1950s civil defense manuals horribly out of date Mm -hmm. and there's one you know that says our friend the atom and the one (laughs) character says some friends like you know, <laughs> well, that's a reference to a that's a Disney cartoon. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Our friendly Adam. It's tough. It's really tough uh, to get a good information in the middle of these things. One of the scenes I do like in the day after is after the bomb is is dropped and and the war is over. You get a bunch of farmers because it takes place in Kansas and they're all sitting around and they're getting guidance. Sometimes it's pamphlets. Other times they might have had someone that was like a local CD volunteer, civil defense volunteer, and they're reading off all of the guidance and they say, you need to remove the top six inches. I think it's six inches of topsoil and replace it. And you need to take that six inches of topsoil. It's contaminated. You want to throw it away and put it somewhere. And they give all this guidance away. And the, the farmers are like, but that would, you could, you can't plant anything anymore or how are we supposed to do this we don't have any our farm equipment isn't working there's no fuel there's nothing nothing's working or they start basically giving really practical responses to that and the people who are reading the guidance are like i don't know (laughs) i don't know what to do it doesn't say we'll try to we'll we'll circle back uh, we'll get back to you on this. You know what? They actually talk about the six inches of topsoil in kind of in the same seat in Jericho, hmm. which is set in Kansas as well, but it has way too many mountains in the background for it not to be California. <laughs> uh, you told me to watch Jericho, and I said I was going to uh, many years ago when we did our Fallout episode. <laughs> I'm still working on it. I watched the first episode. I need to get into it again. When I get Netflix again, I'll, I'll start. I'll get it. I promise. I promise. Carol mentions in the movie, she wonders whether or not maybe the baby was the lucky one for dying so quickly. Very depressing scene there the kids are fighting mary liz was was feeding a stray cat the brother didn't like that mary liz was because they don't have a lot of food mary liz says uh but we're feeding larry he's kind of like a stray cat and they all just are not particularly doing very well scotty goes missing he goes he tries to run away but before he runs away he goes to the cemetery and starts like burying some of his toys yeah scotty's like we don't have any food to feed them anymore so i guess i'm gonna uh, bury them so very sad carol the mother tries to comfort scotty says that it's okay to be scared there's so many funerals happening in the background while all of this is happening some of the funerals have a lot of people there to mourn other ones are really only visited by the people digging the graves themselves back at uh mr abhart's house with the with the radio they're talking about how there's no more messages no one's answering anymore santa rosa is not answering anymore he's starting to get a lot more radio silence there's no more garbage pickups food is running low they're not burying people anymore they're setting them on fire <laughs> they don't that either they're out of room or it's taking too much energy for people to actually have to dig all of the graves there's a, a scene with a police chief basically having like a nervous breakdown not able to he says he can't keep order anymore that was really that was another one of those scenes that scotty digging the holes i also sort of paid more attention to the second time around and found more yeah. disturbing for obvious reasons i also noticed the, the police chief like that actors does a really good job where it's this subtle just like i can't this is all too much and of all the people to be having a nervous <laughs> breakdown it's the police chief i mean not to fair enough dude but it's also so unsettling particularly in a small community like that when you probably know your police chief i don't know who my police chief is and he's still wearing his uniform but it's clearly 
ragged. Uh, it's torn. It's dirty. Things are pretty rough. There's a, a nice little tender moment of if Carol and Mary Liz at home, they're looking over old photographs. Mary Liz asks what it's going to be like. What it what, what would it be like to have a relationship? What, what would it be like to, to make love? What would it be like to do all of these things that, that she wants to do, but she doesn't. She's not confident that he's going to get to have that kind of a life. It's a nice little moment. The teenage actress doesn't have a ton to do in the movie, but that is her moment. Honestly, before that, I, I wasn't sure. Like she wasn't terrible, but you know, all she kind of had to do was miss her dad, be kind of like daddy's princess a mm-hmm. little bit at the beginning of the movie, and then be upset when he never came back. But that moment, she is really good, and it's barely even a, a maybe that she won't get to have that. Yeah. Her final scene is is she's saying like not for me basically like I'm not it's I'm never gonna know about that it's terrible. <laughs> I really like the fact that the kids are three different ages. So Scotty is is dealing with things pretty much in the abstract. You know I don't have food to to, to feed my toys, so I'm gonna bury them. Um, what is radiation? I don't even know. Can I have a banana? You know like yeah. that that level of ignorance, but. Still, that's how he associates with the stuff. And then you've got Mary Liz at the higher end. She knows what's going on. She knows that she's not going to have a childhood and she may not even get to have a relationship in an adulthood for whatever the reason is. And then you've got Brad somewhere kind of in the middle trying to do what his maybe what his dad would do, you know, trying to keep things up, trying to be helpful. But also yeah, what his mom definitely. would do following his mom's example of, of helping people and him trying to maybe put aside toys. You know, he literally is that point where he has toys, then he puts it away so that he could donate the batteries to someone else, uh, maybe a younger child or to someone else. And he tries to kind of be that bridge between between uh, his different generations. Um, I, I think I like I really like the way that they did that. The three kids with three different ages is particularly good. Yeah, I actually, this time around, I paid sort of more attention to Brad, and he's sort of a, not quite a gee whiz, like, sort of earnest character, but it's it's a believable version of that. Yeah. And I'm, you, you know, a lot of the time, I'm like, oh, son, take care of your mother, like, you're 10, and she's 40, but you're the man <laughs> of the house now. Like, when those things are made explicit in movies, I, I often roll my eyes, but it's done in this lovely, like, sad way, where he's just like a good kid. And you had the sort of overbearing dad at the beginning being like, oh, be better at bike riding, son. And <laughs> Brad's riding the bike all over the movie, getting stronger. And he becomes the adult that his dad was sort of haranguing him to be. But obviously he shouldn't have to be that adult. You know, it wasn't yeah. supposed to go that way. Not for many years. <laughs> Brad's bike gets stolen by that, like the, the town 80s bully. He comes in, steals food and steals the bike. It's awful. <laughs> But then Brad has to get his dad's bike out, which again, symbolism. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's well done. It's not like, but like, you know what it, you know, kind of, I, I, you kind of get what it means without it being anything but subtle, you know? I didn't, I didn't pick that up until the third time I watched this movie. I thought that was a really good, good scene. Yeah. So that's very good stuff. What's not is uh, Scotty. Scotty's sick. Mm. Uh, his mother tries to give him this. I I actually stopped really when I watched this the last time because I've been starting to give my son a bath uh, in a bathtub, and it's very sad. I had to take a second here, because the mother's just trying to give him a bath, but he's bleeding, right? He's got diarrhea. He's got a fever. She tries to hold him in a sheet to kind of make him go to sleep. And then the next morning, the mother's scrambling to find something. You don't really know what it is. She's like in, in Scotty's room, look, looking under the bed, looking everywhere. She's trying to find his teddy bear because Scotty has died, and the priest is here now to bury him in their backyard and she wants to him to be buried with a teddy bear but she just cannot find it anywhere the priest just 
like Kevin Costner earlier, just kind of zombie walks into the backyard, just starts saying prayers as soon as he's still walking. Uh The mother's like, no, you can't. You can't do this yet. Very sad. And you get to the point where you think that priest is just done 15 funerals that day the mom she's she's very sad puts batteries that they i think takes batteries out of a flashlight and puts it in the answering machine box so she can hear the husband's voice again about him being late for dinner the whole the whole thing people are just barely on uh hanging by a thread i thought that the mom i i could be wrong i thought that she was looking for batteries for the flashlights and she listens to the the message one more time oh maybe that's what it was and then she takes them out and puts them in the flashlight. Narratively, that works better. Yeah, I mean, one last moment of listening to his voice, and then back to sort of the practical survival things. Oh, that makes more flashlight. sense. I like that. Thanks for pointing that out. That's a, That works really well. Um, Brad goes back to Mr. Abhart. Mr. Abhart's suffering from memory loss, and his voice, he's losing his voice. I think it's implied that his wife has just passed away. He still pledges to man the radio, but no one's, no one's answering anymore. I think it's implied pretty soon after that that Mr. Abhart is dead. Brad still tries to help people. He's on his dad's bike. He's cycling through town. He's trying to, to help people out. You see that the cemetery's full. There's just trash everywhere. People are burning bodies. Kind of out of nowhere, we see the mom making something out of bed sheets and thread and, and needle. And it turns out it's a, a funeral shroud for Mary Liz because she got sick. There's not even a scene where she's sick. She's just the next scene. You see her holding her daughter. <laughs> on a bed trying to, to bury her, make a, make a little shroud for her. The fact that you get all these kind of build-up, a little bit of a build-up for Scotty and then nothing for Mary Liz, I think is a really powerful turn for, for this, about how rote everything is getting. The suffering being just as normal as breathing, really. Yeah, it's it's really, really good pacing. You know, the director, I assume, screenwriter, whoever whoever decided to, to do that. You have sort of the, the the actual normalcy, the attack, the attempted normalcy. The way I always watch it, it's it's you know, it's it starts to get the, the misery starts to sort of increase more and more. And once you get to the Scotty scene, which is maybe the most unsettling scene in the whole movie, there's like this downward slope, you know, yeah. towards doom. It's not like it's not a big deal anymore, but... um, You can get to normalcy. It just really sucks when your normalcy is awful because Mm -hmm. you get used to it and everything is relative and normalcy is things aren't on fire internally and also within your family and your community, things are falling apart, but things are just... That's the normal. Yeah. The community is collapsing. The family is crumbling sort of at the same time. There's never really any talk that anything can be fixed. Like, there's no, maybe the army will arrive. Mm -hmm. Or even if they did, what could they do for them? It's this strange mixture of keeping on, but never expecting to be saved in this movie. Yeah, because it's it's like, keep calm and carry on, but towards what end? You know, you don't really know what, when you can stop. Yeah. I think one of the themes about this movie is, is that really what you can do is what you can do. You know, it's you do whatever you can for as long as you can. And sometimes that means bringing in Larry, your neighbor, who at some point Larry dies. And he, he gets, he, he dies of radiation sickness and it's a very sad, you know, additional loss. But you, you do what you can. And to the point where Brad, he rides past the gas station where Mike and Hiroshi would normally be. But Mike is dead. He probably has been dead for a little bit of time. They see, Brad sees someone loading Mike into the back of a car and no one answers him when he says, is that Mike? But it's it's clear that's who that is because he, he finds Hiroshi sitting in the garage with his fishing pole and just a bunch of canned food. Mike was dying and he says, all right, Hiroshi, this is you, man. I'm sorry. I can't help you anymore. 
a lot of the things I like about this movie are the scenes that don't get shown, but you knew happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and this Definitely. is one of those that I think is pretty, particularly strong. It's almost a little bit like the Fallout video game series where you get the end of something that's happened a long time ago, but you just kind of see the remnants of it. You see a, yeah. a, t- a teddy bear set up at a fake little like <laughs> tea party. And you don't know, yeah. you don't see the scene of someone setting that up, but you just, you learn later on through context clues kind of what might have happened. You see two people that are skeletons embracing in a bathtub and you know like that was something that happened and you can kind of build your own story around it. I think this movie is particularly good at that stuff. Absolutely though. We saw enough of Mike that we did kind of like Mike from what we saw. One of the things I like about this, Brad doesn't go home and ask mom for permission to take Hiroshi home. (laughs) He just does. He just does what he needs to do now. So he, he grabs Hiroshi with some canned food and the fishing pole, puts him on his bike and they bike home and the mom's like, okay, Hiroshi now lives with us. It's one of the last sort of sweet scenes. Yeah. Well. Because the next scene you get is Carol in the pantry and there's rats eating all of their food. Things are tough. Um, No one's answering the the radio anymore. Brad takes over that job. There's a scene where he says, this is Hamlin looking for a call and no one's answering anymore. Mom is sick. She's she's throwing up in the toilet. Everything is just kind of getting really bad. You see this one last scene. The one of the only scenes in the movie where someone has a huge emotional outpour and it's Carol at night at a funeral pyre watching people in the town being burned. And she falls to her knees and digs in the dirt and starts screaming, who did this? Not really at anyone in particular. The movie screws with us because someone walks up from behind a man and grabs her and kisses her. And you think, oh, that's the dad. That's the first time I thought I saw that movie. I was like, oh, that's dad. He's back. And no, it's the priest. They have a little moment of a kiss. And then once they realize what's going on, nothing else happens. It's um, They just basically have a little bit of a moment of human connection. It's that scene. I still think about that scene all the time. I don't know what it's trying to say other than just, oh, it's not the dad. There's a little bit of a moment of connection. Now they're both just kind of crying and supporting each other. But it's just, it's a lot of chaos. I don't think the first time I noticed it was the priest. I had to look it up later because he looks disheveled. He's not wearing his priestly garb yeah, anymore. Yeah, but it is and the I priest. saw your notes and then when I watched I paid attention. I was still was like, um, of all the people for it to be, it being the priest is really interesting. There's probably a million pages of like <laughs> overthinking that. I don't I don't I don't know. Well that's what I do. That's my job here. <laughs> Yet it reminds me of yet another uh, end of the world type movie that I've seen. It last night, where the world's going to end at like midnight for some unspecified cause. Sandra O oh is the main character, and hmm. she meets some dude, and she wants him to help her commit suicide. Like right as the world ends, and spoiler universe, they end up kissing each other just as the world ends um, instead of shooting each other. Which sounds sort of melodramatic, and it sort of is, but it's it's really well done. Hmm. I just so I thought of that when I was watching last night and thinking like it's not about that it's the priest of all people and and, and our protagonist it's it's somebody right. it's some it's another human it's 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 connection near the end it doesn't mean rom- like romance or or like sexual attraction We're, I'm not totally sure it's a very interesting choice to include. It's a question I have. When I, every time I watch this movie, trying to figure out what's going on there, but it is just, it's something, you know, she, she's not well, um, she goes back to the house. She basically preps the house to look like they're leaving because there has been discussion about people leaving and Carol said previously that they weren't going to leave, but now it's, it's just her, it's Brad and it's Hiroshi, but sheets all over all of the furniture and the house. Uh, she looks at the piano that Mary Liz used to play and it looks like she's about to like maybe play a note, but she doesn't. 
she can't do it and she closes the lid of the of the piano keys and they go in the car so it's Hiroshi and Brad and, and Carol and they're in the car and you realize the door to the garage is closed they go to start the car and you realize oh no this is because Carol is going to kill them and they all seem to know it at least maybe Hiroshi Hiroshi doesn't know it but Brad it's pretty clear Brad also knows what's happening they're going to commit suicide with carbon monoxide poisoning even to the point where Brad's like all right come on let's do it because they know this is kind of it but Carol can't do it. Even in the short story, she can't pull the, she can't turn the key. She's not able to do that. The last scene you really see in the movie is they are celebrating. I'm not sure whose birthday. Maybe it's the dad's or maybe it's Brad's. Do you, you ever see who it is? But they're celebrating someone's birthday. Well, you see, I think it might be Brad solely because there was the talk about his birthday at the start of the oh, movie. Oh, that's a good point. A couple months um, later. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure at the start of the movie, they talk about it being in two months. So if only two months have passed, yeah. that's oh geez. somehow more disturbing. That, that makes the writing even better that it is brad's birthday because she was talking about in that scene what they were going to get him and she says well he wants this new computer game and the dad's like no he needs to get a new bicycle a good bicycle the mom mentions at some point all right so we've got these graham crackers and a little bit of peanut butter we've got our candles and we're going to sing happy birthday but we need a present and (laughs) hiroshi hands over the uh the teddy bear the teddy bear of scotty's that she was looking for earlier and she wasn't able to find it and it's it's really nice and they they make a wish uh to blow out the candles brad asks what they should wish for and carol has this little moment where she says what do we do now make a wish what do we wish for mom that we remember it all the good and the awful We finally left. That we never gave up. That we will last to be here. To deserve the children. Movie ends with a little bit of stock family footage of them celebrating one of the dads previous birthdays. Very very happy in that particular scene, but um that's kind of how the, the movie ends pretty uh, powerful gut punch right at the end huh it's like i already watched it yesterday but going through it again i'm like oh god just (laughs) we don't know what happens and that's one of the things i wanted to get into now that we're going to transition to our uh super critical nuclear podcast new plot discussion stuff the first point i wanted to raise is i really like this movie um i I love how this movie makes it really hard to analyze in the very usual way that we do you know is this scene as accurate in terms of what's reality what is this telling people about nuclear war and you know is all these things that tended to make me want to do this podcast the kinds of things that i got triggered for previously you know this movie doesn't have a lot of those one of the reasons why it doesn't have a lot of those because it decides that it's not going to be that kind of a story you know we never learn who started the war if it's over why it happened we never see bomb detonation visuals beyond the bright light no no mushroom clouds fireball windows breaking no blast anything like that no one of government authority really outside the town we never really learn what happened to the dad never never hear what actually happens uh we have no definitive idea what will happen to carol to brad to hiroshi probably won't end well but maybe it does we just don't know it really is great because it just focuses so much on this is how this town is experiencing nuclear war Someone can tell you in a nuclear conflict, there's going to be 15 mega deaths uh, that will occur. You know, 15 million people would die uh, within the X amount of time. How do you associate that to anything you really know? Like in the United States, we talk about 200,000 people 
dying currently due to the coronavirus. And that's just a hard statistic for anyone to really you know, grapple with. But if you say, oh, that's the population of this city just gone. Mm-hmm. Or if you say, you know, in this way, it's like, here's how this one town would experience this. It makes it so much more powerful that the people who are just trying to kind of lead their lives, they're innocent, they're just, as you mentioned at the beginning, these are the kind of squabbles that you want them to live a Hallmark movie and they deserve these kinds of conflicts, uh, but not having to make, you know, burial shrouds for their kids or worry about what kind of radioactive milk. It makes it hard to nitpick, but I think it's great because the thing that really matters in this movie is people reacting to these things. There's a really strong sense of survivor's guilt in this movie. Like people that do that you survive, your other loved ones don't. Are you even the lucky ones? Why are you the lucky ones? What does it mean to be the lucky one when you know you may be sick later in a kind of a more worse way? Is the dad the lucky one? The fact that he was in the city? These are the kind of questions that you tend to grapple with. And I think the movie is, is, is effective because it only lets you focus on those things rather than the simulacra of the explosion or any of those kinds of stuff that tend to be the things a lot of these kind of nuke movies focus. What do you think about all of that? Like, do you think there are there things in the movie that you kind of wish you saw? Or do you think that that was as, as effective as I'm thinking it is? I'd say it it basically works sometimes like yet another comparison there's this ya book i read called how we live now it involves nukes and an army invasion there's like a whole thing but Mm. you never actually find out what happened because i swear to god the narrator every time she's like and then an adult tried to talk about what happened but i wasn't paying attention i'm like god (laughs) just tell me what happened i've seen and, and read other fiction where you assume it was the soviet union right i mean that's Whoever, you know, started the the conflict. The logical guess, 1983, is that Soviet Union was the one bombing. And perhaps the U.S. has done the same to them. They mention in the movie massive retaliation is something that they mention, which kind of implies that the United States started this and the Soviets are retaliating. Maybe. That's that's the only limited thing that I can kind of take away from this. You don't need to know. You sort of assume something, you know, something else totally weird could have happened. It just doesn't feel as contrived as it sometimes does, but you don't know even like jericho sort of dangles like excruciatingly slowly what happened and but there's there's something about the way this movie is done where the way it's presented that you don't i, I don't want to yell at the characters for not wanting to find out yeah when carol yells who did this it's not like it, you know explain to me the policy decisions <laughs> that led to this it's almost how could someone do this this didn't why and, and it's it's all these other questions along with who did this just what a ridiculous waste this was and she puts a lot of it on herself and if we if we take her last line in the movie that you know we hope that we will last here and be here long enough to deserve the children you know to kind of be good people to be the people in a in a new in a new world if there is going to be one that is deserving of of, of children deserving of whatever you want to describe, you know, describe there's a lot of loaded stuff in that particular phrase but deserving of a future a brighter future you know she puts herself probably into that a little bit maybe some people do that some stories focus on that miracle mile covers that a bit at the end like did we as innocent bystanders do enough to to be pushing our governments to not uh have these kinds of weapons out there to not have these kind of nuclear postures to not be okay just generally comfortable with the idea that the reason why we have peace since end of world war ii at the global scale is because we have these things uh hanging over our heads like that's fine we're fine with that she didn't push the button and it does it's not like it's an excuse like a justification your kids are dead because you didn't try harder you didn't march in enough protests you know none of those things are true but those are the kind of questions that people will have and it's the kind of stuff that why it's so hard for people that are in favor of removing nuclear weapons from the world 
it's a really still difficult message these days because people are focused on a lot of other stuff. Yeah, there's a lot baked into that that everyone's trying to kind of really grapple with right now. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's there's a lot of like tangential, like political philosophical musings that you could take out of that. I mean, Carol's a generally good person. You know, she's frazzled, slightly resentful at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. But she takes in poor Larry, who might not have a single line in the movie. Brad brings home Hiroshi, you know, and, and uh, he just becomes integrated into the remaining family. She is a good, decent person. And it's not her fault, obviously. Mm-hmm. But obviously, the least amount of fault lies with kids who the son was five years old. He cares about his toys getting enough to eat. I think that, you know, saying we're all to blame as if we're all equally to blame us adults, age of majority, over Mm -hmm. 21 types. But at the same token, there's, you know, there's truth to it that the kids are the the most innocent ones. I said earlier that this movie really bothered my mom and I don't have any kids. I sure bet that this movie becomes even more horrifying when you do, which... (laughs) Yep. I've, I've seen this movie three times. I saw it way before I ever had had a, had a kid. I saw it while my wife was pregnant, and then I've seen it now since the children's God. been born. And it's a different experience every single time. Yeah. And I don't get that experience when I watch, like, G.I. Joe 2 and all the new scenes <laughs> in that. Wow, this is richer, more poignant <laughs> content now. Yeah. Well, so the normal things I would nitpick, right, or like the detonation scenes, there really mm-hmm. isn't one. There is the scene where they're getting the news broadcast, which I, th- I think is, is pretty good. That is probably roughly how it would be, or it'd be some sort of an emergency broadcast message. But it's that same kind of frantic, like, all right, stay at home, get lay down, that kind of stuff. And they do that. You do get a flash of really bright light. It's hard to tell how how far away is it. San Francisco has lots of mountains kind of around the bay that could be blocking some of this light was this an airburst really high up in the air which are the kinds of things you would do against a city yeah you might be able to get a a flash like that it's kind of hard to nitpick any of these things because you don't really know it's a fictional town but i think the fact that there isn't uh, anything else like there's no blast wave nothing's catching on fire all that kind of stuff that's all normal to me Uh, i think you could see a, a flash like this and then not experience any of the other things you tend to be tend to be used to i think it's weirder that it's like during the day and you get that kind of a flash, like with the whole house basically lights up. That makes me think that they were like line of sight of the city. And I don't think they actually are, but there's a lot of things there that it's just, it's a $750,000 movie. They filmed this. And I think in like Southern California somewhere, it's not going to fit exactly the neighborhood. But those are really the only things. The The way that radiation sickness works in this movie, I think, is pretty pretty close to actually how it would be, I think, particularly in places that aren't immediately within the blast area. And it's not like it's several months later. We're talking, as you mentioned, like two months is is really what's what's happening. The only other thing that I think some people would be that have asked me on, on Twitter about this movie is if there's fallout, why is there not like fog or like cloud or dust everywhere? And nuclear winter straight up. That really depends on how much radiation people get and how much smoke and debris. I think there should be something. I think a lot of that's mostly the budget for the movie, but mm-hmm. I think it's enough that people are getting sick and they also aren't cleaning. You know, they're not disinfecting their clothes. They're just living their lives anywhere where there's this kind of radiation stuff happening. And it's it's a lot like coronavirus in the sense that it's an invisible killer. You don't see radiation. And they mentioned this a couple of times in the day after uh, in the scene where they're Gutenberg is in the shelter and they go outside and they see all of the dead goats and sheep and stuff. You don't see it, but it's there and it's happening. You have to wait it out. Sheltering in your house doesn't come up at all. And you don't want to just shelter in your first on your first floor of your right. house. 
you want to shelter somewhere where you're not being think about radiation fallout like snow where would snow accumulate and where it's accumulating like maybe on your walls outside or on your tree or your floor outside or maybe in your clothes when you were outside and you kind of bring it in any one of those little snowflakes is something that will emit radiation until it stops and it can be stopped by air a certain amount of distance of air lead you know two inches of lead will stop it um certain amount of dirt will stop it certain amount of concrete will stop it no matter where this stuff is accumulating eventually you could get away from it by just distance but people are just living their lives in their first floor of their house when they probably should be in the basement but you know what there aren't a lot of basements in california yeah. so it's not like people have places they can just go to I get it. And that's why I think that the radiation sickness as we see it is pretty realistic because no one's cleaning up even the little bit that's there. So it's of course it's going to get worse. The way that the family dies sort of one by one, is that... <laughs> I mean, does that sort of ring as, as accurate as it's going to be? Yeah, it tracks. Yeah. Radiation affects everybody differently. The exposure rates, you know, some of the kids might be exposed more than the mom because they're outside playing. Right. They're drinking a lot more food and milk than the mother maybe because yeah. of different reasons. Uh, people that tend to be younger with weaker immune systems might be affected more by the cancer or the digestive breakdown stuff that could be happening. Older elderly people might be also affected a lot more. People who are very healthy can be exposed to higher amounts of radiation and then still be able to recover. It's one of those things that's not going to be, you, you apply the same amount of fallout to 10 people, you're going to get 10 different results Do they get exposed to. And also what kind of radiation? Maybe mm -hmm. some people are getting exposed to cesium, other people are getting exposed to strontium-90, there's all kinds of different stuff. Some, some people could be getting iodine, radiation, really bad versions of iodine. So they're getting thyroid cancers, which are a little bit longer pacing, nasty stuff versus cesium, what? which will get you pretty quick. Yeah. Do we assume, not to put an ending that doesn't exist on the movie, but I mean, do we assume that Carol, Brad, and Hiroshi die? Is there any reason to think they don't? Yeah, I think there's definitely, there could be a reason that they don't. Could be that maybe they leave. Maybe they finally decide to get out of that area and they go somewhere where they're not just constantly being hit by radiation. There's a chance that after a certain amount of time, some of the worst, nastiest pieces of, of radioactive material out there would, would go through their half-lives, mm -hmm. meaning that they would decay to the point of the amount of fission is not as dangerous as it once was. For some particles, it's two weeks. For some other stuff, it's it's uh, it's really thousands of years. You know, it all depends on the level of exposure to that kind of stuff. So I think there's a world where Carol can be okay, where Carol can recover never occurred to me that she would be okay honestly <laughs> i think it's so it's so much in the open there it's not like if you get it you're automatically going to die it is right. a sad thing it really you just don't know and they don't have tools they mentioned at one point the doctor's like we don't have anything to measure radiation we don't have a Geiger counter. We don't have anything. I think there's a world where they can be okay, but that's all relative, right? Like, they're, are they going to die from radiation sickness? Maybe not, but... Cholera or something in the refugee Canadian camp, like... Yeah, everyone talks about walking up towards Canada, uh, which may not have been as, as hit as hard. There's a few references Probably. here and there in the short story and in the movie where Mr. Abhart's what thing was a strategic value, meaning like it was something of military or industrial value that the other side, the, the Russians, I suppose here would have targeted. He says at one point that Yosemite was hit and like, God, why? So that must <laughs> Take have that been... nature. Yeah. Old faithfuls now is now gone. Why? And he mentions that must've been an accident. Yeah, it might've been, might've been an errant missile. So those are all kinds of, 
questions. So where is safe? Maybe Canada's better. Who knows, right? Who, what information are they getting that says Canada's any better? That may have been fifth-hand information from 15 different ham radio guys, and it's one person in like, their cabin in, in uh, Saskatchewan. It's like, yeah, I'm fine now. <laughs> all right, let's all go to Bob's Saskatchewan cabin. <laughs> That's why I think the movie, the fact that the town is cut off, is so realistic for how all this would go. You know, water, power, sewer, all the utilities are off. No civil defense communication. There's plans for all this stuff, but sometimes uh, you have a good plan and then you get punched in the face and your plan goes away. You know, it suddenly occurs to me, this is this is very strange. I mean, did they need civil defense manuals? Like there's, there's so much controversy yeah. and debate back in the day about civil defense. You know, oh, we're just terrifying children. For no reason, you know, or the idea that to prepare for nuclear war in the way that they did back in the height of things was to imply that if it's survivable, it's mm-hmm. it's considerable. Like we could actually do this and survive. And and people wanted, for very obvious reasons, to say, no, we're not doing this because we're just not. It's not. It just seems like they needed a little more information. And then if they had done like the the protect and survive, like build a like a mattress fort and hidden it for two weeks or like um I'm remembering I've never actually watched uh When the Wind Blows, but I read the comic. Building your inner refuge. Yeah. It's it's about the this British couple. And there's and there's nuclear war and mm-hmm. uh, the, the the man is constantly like absurdly London blitz, keep calm and carry on. And he keeps sort of repeating like all the like, the manuals, what exactly you're supposed to do in this sort of absurdly optimistic, like, well, if we just do just what they told us to do and we'll be fine, we're doing all, we're checking things off the list. It, it's it's kind of mocking of, of the civil defense things and the suggestions, I mm-hmm. think, because it's just like, and they're not okay at the end is the implication. And it's this absurd incredibly dark humor james and hilda yeah i I haven't even watched the movie because i'm like oh god (laughs) yeah be careful that movie that movie wrecks me every time i watch it dude the snowman which was by the same cartoonist the movie of that was upsetting as a child so that one will just (laughs) yeah but i mean i I, i'm just overthinking now if they had if they actually if this little town had more of these sort of stereotypical civil defense stuff would more people have been okay i don't know that's kind of taking the poetry out of things I mean, I don't know. <laughs> People have those debates about civil defense. If you prepare mm-hmm. for nuclear war, do you make it less likely or more likely? Um, are you a realist to say that it's going to probably happen? So people need to be prepared, even if the information's not perfect. Maybe there's at least something because otherwise you end up with people uh, boiling water, thinking that it will solve radiation problems. Or is it one of those things where if you get a population thinking like, yeah, we could probably survive this. We've got more nuke. We'll go faster than they do. We're, we, we're just generally stronger. We're going to have all this civil defense. We'll have fallout shelters. It'll be fine. Then you don't go into the streets and start protesting your government saying, maybe let's get rid of the number of nuclear weapons that we do have. Now, those are all real debates. And it sounds like this town was just not particularly well prepared at all for any of yeah. this information and nor were any of the families. Uh, but it's not, you know, it's it's hard to like fault the families for this kind of stuff because they're trying to live their own uh, hectic lives. How much of in my day do I spend? And this is sincere. How much of my day do I spend reading my nuclear manuals, my nuclear fallout manuals? I have a poster on my wall here in my basement that's the about can you protect yourself from fallout yeah go to your local civil defense and get your your pamphlet uh and i have those pamphlets but i don't spend a lot of time actually reading them because sometimes the information's great other times it's exaggerated in terms of its positive effect other times it's, it's absurd like let's talk about let's talk about the what i call the parking lot movie discussion and this is a kind of a non-nuclear discussion here 
Uh, parking lot refers to when I was growing up when we would go to the movies, uh, you know, movie theaters, that kind of stuff that, you, that, that, that I think are still around in buildings. We just don't really go to them all that much these days. But uh, I used to sit around in the parking lot with friends and we would discuss the movie before we would go our separate ways. There's this great quote here that I think you really liked from uh, Roger Ebert. So he gave it, he gave it his, the highest four star rating. Something that he brought up uh, that makes me kind of rethink a little bit about the movie is, is, is this movie about hope or despair or kind of what, where is it is on that, on that tipping point what's ultimately the message of testament i'm going to read a little bit of the quote that he says and i want to get your reaction to this because i'm glad that you wanted to kind of quote this here testament may be the first movie in a long time that will make you cry it made me cry and seeing it again for the second time knowing everything that would happen anticipating each scene before it came i was affected just as deeply but the second time i was able to see more clearly that the movie is more than just a devastating experience that it has a certain message of hope it is the film of a suburban american family and what happens to that family after a nuclear war it is not a science fiction movie and it does not have any special effects and i think there are no big scenes of buildings blowing over or people disintegrating we never even see a mushroom cloud we never even know who started the war instead testament is a tragedy about manners it asks how we might act towards one another how our values might stand up in the face of an overwhelming catastrophe. I think that's something that I, I needed to pick up again on the second viewing as well. After the, the gut punch of every scene after scene of awfulness kind of hit me, uh, what, what do you think about this? What do you think ultimately the message of Testament is? You've seen a number of these films. How does this place in the apocalyptic uh, catalog? You know, I wouldn't say it's about hope, even in a qualified way, the way that Ebert did. Mm-hmm. A tragedy about manners. I, I really like that because I definitely get what he's saying there, where not manners like in sort of inane, sort of sit up straight and don't slurp, actually being kind to your neighbors, not immediately retreating into selfishness because this astronomically terrible thing has happened. And the ending, nobody would blame carol for committing suicide at that point mm-hmm. i mean brad is aware i mean it's well okay someone would but like we we get it as viewers at least and we don't you know the cavalry didn't come in there was no reason to not do it exactly except to keep on and just keep being alive hope isn't the right word yeah there certainly is a lot of despair it's just very, very human, I guess. And, and not not to say that those other movies are, are lacking a humanity, but their humanity tends to be punched in the face by nuclear doom. Hmm. And this is just a little different. It could be about a different tragedy, I guess. And, you know, it could be, I guess it could be about a plague <laughs> or something like that. But it is, to me, though, whenever it's a human done thing, completely human done, I'm always more sort of indignant on behalf of the (laughs) characters. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I watched it the first time, I was thinking about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Like every country, it's done horrible things. But to know that the one that I get to pay taxes to did make parents watch their children die in in the same way, well, that will never be okay with me sure and that i think that's part of what carol tries to say at the end when she says she hopes at some point will deserve the children i think that's that kind of stuff that she kind of lumps herself into that whole overall acquiescence and kind of slow walk towards uh towards the consequences and the actions that we see in the movie yeah as bleak as the movie is i I do think it is kind of more hopeful in terms of the ending than the short story the way the short story works is that she also tries to commit suicide but in the in the car but is unable to do so there's no pied piper story which we'll get into in a second here but there is a last entry where 
she prays to God in her journal that Scotty and Teddy, who is Hiroshi in the movie, that they die before she does so that they're not having to suffer as long as, as she may yeah. be willing to do her for herself. And she pleads that those that may be reading her journal years later would know how her family and the town held up. And here's what the quote is. Final entry. If survivors come here, want them to know something. We didn't act like animals. Most people were good. Helped. Tried. If only we could have lived as well as we have died. I wish. I kind of like that particular framing a little bit more than the Pied Piper story. Uh, I think the Pied Piper story complicates this movie a little bit more than it adds in terms of the me metaphor. So it's an addition from the, the short story over it. I get it as a framing device a little bit. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm just dumb and I don't I don't understand that particular darker element to the <laughs> Pied Piper story. But to me, it was a lot of me trying to figure out what they were trying to say with this more so than I think the, the impact that it ultimately had on me, at least when I watched it even the second time it was the third time really where i'm like oh i see what they're what they're aiming for here it introduces the kids to the story which i liked and it has that little last bit of dialogue about civilization returning to become worthy again i just don't know how effective it is what about you do you think that that is something that works for you it does it or maybe maybe i'm just not getting it <laughs> The story is even sort of, it's a very plainly written story, kind of plain spoken. It has sort of the same increasing dread as the movie, but in some ways I do like the ending of the story better. The short story? Mm-hmm. But, but the movie, in particular the second time, I don't, I don't mind the Pied Piper thing. And I thought about it a little more this this second time. Um, and I like the play, just a play in general, being sort of one of the last really normal things mm. in the movie. And the way you see some of the adults starting to cry at the end, because they kind of, they, they know it was also sort of a last gasp. Yeah. You've already heard that some of the kids are sick and weren't in the play. It's, that in itself is really good. The, the Pied Piper thing, it's almost too subtle, yet too ham-fisted in some ways. Yeah, equally. Too, uh, <laughs> too, too Hamlin-fisted. <laughs> but at the same token, I mean, the message, again, like the like war stuff, just thinking of a war, big or on the level of, you know, nuclear apocalypse, in terms of something that adults have subjected children to, again, not every adult is like, we're not all cobbled in the same way. I pushed the button, you pushed it. But yeah. in, but like, in a, in a manner of speaking, war is something adults have done to children. Right. So that they're not, you know, that's not wrong. I think it's okay. I think it works. You know, that's the hardest part about all of this, you know, nuclear fiction that we watch from a, from either an analytical perspective or from an entertainment perspective or any of this is the worst thing you can have is you can scare someone and think this is awful and you paralyze them without really giving them some kind of sense of agency, a sense of hope, a sense of, well, here's what you can do about it. You know, I think yeah. that's the hardest part with all of this stuff is you watch Dr. Strangelove and at the end of it, you don't know what necessarily you're going to do. Or threads to me. Yeah. Look, there's different, <laughs> there's time, there's time for those kinds of movies. And then there's other times for something that gives you a little bit of a, here's what you can do about it. But sometimes those can be a little bit hokey. Uh, the movie that I think of first is we covered on the podcast previously is Amazing Grace and Chuck, which is a story about a kid. Again, um, who goes on a tour of a to to an ICBM, an intercontinental ballistic, ballistic missile launching facility, because they live in that part of the country next to an air force base, and they go on for like a school tour. He sees this thing, and he's all scared about nuclear war now, and he decides to protest nuclear weapons uh, by never playing little league again. And he's a really good little league player. He protests, and it gets in the news, and start profession, professional athletes, including 
a real-life professional basketball player named Alex English, who plays this guy named Amazing Grace in the movie. He decides that he's going to join the protest, and then it becomes international protests against uh, nuclear weapons by athletes no longer playing their sports. And it's all around the world. And you see a little bit of that today uh, when it comes to kind of social justice, you know, Black Lives Matters, protests with athletes. And, and the movie ends with nuclear weapons going away because the kids oh <laughs> are able to convince. So then you think, OK, well, there's some positive there of people trying to. That sounds kind of terrible, though. <laughs> <laughs> but they're equally it's it's a little hokey. But, you know, maybe we need that kind of perspective. Right. To, Using sports to do it, uh, that that's more convincing than some methods, to be honest. Sure. People love sports. There's a lot of that. And I think that their Testament isn't really trying to do that. People can watch Testament and just be like, oh, this sucks <laughs> and, and never know what to do. But I think at least in Testament, there is a little bit of a feeling of look at this community coming together. They're, they're trying their best. Look at, look at the impact this is having on this, on this family, but they're still trying to hold together. What can we maybe do to help them when, when in threads have this never happened at all. I mean, the sort of everydayness at the beginning is so perfectly done where you wouldn't be interested in them really, if this didn't happen to them. Sure. But then at the end of it, you you're so upset on their behalf that their boring suburbia has been taken away, that they're, marriage squabble has been taken away yeah you wish that boring life on them like you said mm -hmm. it's a, like you want to do you want to prevent it i yeah yeah <laughs> we we've talked a lot about it but let's let's uh let's apply our rating system to it uh we always tend to to rate the content that we're covering uh one out of five uh with five being the the absolute best and one being uh, terrible. I, but I like to tailor the rating system on the based on the plot that we just saw because I get super critical about the content. So let's just tailor this. This movie makes it a little bit hard given the, the kind of serious nature of it to come up with the, which I usually try to make some sort of comical uh, rating system, but I'm going to give it my best. Um, let's rate the movie Testament on a scale of one out of five attempts to pedal your bike up a steep hill. Uh, one attempt may not get you very much uh, your, in, to make your bike enthusiast father very proud. But if you have five attempts to train yourself, uh, you might just be able to make it to the top. How many uh, attempts up a, a, a steep hill on your bike do you give the movie Testament? I would say four and a half out of five. I love I love some halves. I don't know if that's that's perfectly fine. matters. You know, it's um, like, like at one point your 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 bike, uh, your chain broke and you couldn't make it up all the way. <laughs> There you go. We're really working this uh this, this rating system. Yeah, four and a half. I, I would say two, four four point five. I like Testament, as I mentioned, a lot more than the day after, uh, which has a much higher budget and, and a more famous cast. But maybe there's some other stuff you'd rather recommend for others to watch or to read or something related to this particular story. I've got three things, but why don't you go first? What do you want to recommend to people who are listening to the show to check out next? Okay, so the sh short story, as you said, is very short. Wow. Okay. Um, but it, it's well worth a read, you know, on its own or especially in tandem with the movie. There is, I don't know if you can put it, you should put it in your show notes if you can. There's a link to. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's for free. It's available now. It's been around for a long time. It's open source at this point. I wrote a thing about it when I, for my blog, when I watched it a million years ago, and I'm going to move that to my shiny new website, but um, you can do a link to either one of those. Okay. Um, read my beautiful content. On the stag blog. <laughs> threads in the day after are certainly worth checking out um if you're sort of an aficionado at all even less than you and i mm -hmm. um and i always go back to on the beach which started my fascination 
with this whole subject. And you know, On the Beach has sort of the, the waiting it out horror, but on a much more grander scale. And there's almost, it, it's, we know it's apocalyptic in On the Beach and no one really expects to survive that. So it's, it's bleaker, but there's still sort of, the, the mindset I think is, is sort of similar. The movie is sort of more over the top. The book has a very, very to the point style, more so than even like the, the Testament short story. Mm-hmm. I don't know, just definitely check those out too, even if the science will probably drive you insane if you know anything about it. Um, yeah, they take a lot more liberties with, with radiation <laughs> and uh, sickness and in in general. And, and um, the complete lack of Australian accents <laughs> on numerous characters in the film. Otherwise, how are you going to get Gregory Peck? <laughs> Doesn't there not? You know what? Maybe not even trying is be- better than James Coburn in The Great Escape, who's like, <laughs> I'm Australian, mate. I'm like, sure you are, buddy. Right, right. Um, and also I'll add uh, When the Wind Blows haven't watched the movie yet because the comic is so distressing but just you know the differences in the mindsets and the preparation or lack thereof with the, with this nuclear concept great well i covered that movie and uh story on our uh, podcast recently when we, we we did it with sebastian brixley williams uh who's terrific on, on all this topic and he had that same thing he loved watching and reading the snowman growing up in the united yeah. kingdom uh <laughs> for christmas and then whoop and he also happened to grab this book out of the, 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 the school kid book bin. And oops. Um, yeah, a little bit different. Uh, he the melting snowman was bad enough. He oh, that was bad. So I've, I've got three things um, here. The first is, if you happen to pick up the DVD for this, uh, or if you have YouTube, there's a couple different ex- extras on the DVD that they made for the release of it. There's one thing called Testament at 20, where the cast gets back together and they reflect on the film. Uh, that's pretty good. And there's also one called, I think it's like Nuclear Thoughts. It's another of the extras where they show this movie to a bunch of um, grade school kids and get their reactions to it. Lord. Yeah. And it's it's pretty, it's a really, it's good. I like it. I recommend the book. I, I've mentioned this so many times on the podcast, but I just love this story. The Road by Cormac McCarthy is one of the better books about a family trying to survive without really any information with some kind of mysterious disaster that could be nuclear probably not it's a mix of a bunch of different stuff and just trying to keep it together and this the choices that the father has to make with the son and the family how it breaks down it's just a really powerful compelling story and finally i recommend the movie airplane exclamation mark the comedy so do i why because uh, because we all need to laugh these days um, but also the actor that played the kid in, in Testament, Brad, his name is Ross Harris. He plays little Joey in that movie. The kid that goes into the cockpit and has some of those famous scenes with the pilot. Joey, do you like gladiator stories? Or the scenes that I really loved a lot as a kid when he's with the co-pilot um, who's played by the basketball player Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And it's clearly Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as a co-pilot. And he's pretending not to be Kareem as a Laker fan growing up. I loved seeing that scene a lot and i didn't realize that that was brad from testament and also the actress who plays mary liz her name is roxana zoll she was in a 2000 movie called ground zero which is about a group trying to stop illegal nuclear tests 
I know nothing about it, uh, but I'm going to have to check it out. So these these people have been in a, a, a good... This kid actors, even though they're not in a thousand things, they've been in enough um, that you can see the quality and testament. Yeah, I, I actually need to do an airplane rewatch. It's been many years and I, I quite liked it. And I'd rather rewatch that than testament a third time, <laughs> you masochist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> Lucy, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Um, appreciated the fact that you were willing to deep dive back into this. We'll have to find something if you don't come back on again later that's not as uh, sad and depressing. Maybe maybe there'll be a new Fallout game at some point we can cover that's a little more light. Maybe not in 2020 we can get back into this and not um, just ruin our brains. Yes, I, I was very excited to be asked on the podcast this time as opposed to the first time when I demanded to be on it. <laughs> Um, but I regret nothing. I'm a pushover. Or any any uh, any film, no matter how depressing, I'm happy to come back. Well, in the meantime, where can people find uh, you either on Twitter or or maybe your website? Where can people find some of your uh, musings on these topics? Oh well, the easiest thing place to find me usually is Twitter, which is just at l u c y s t a g. My Bordergon defunct stag blog. I'm going to move over to uh, just myholename.com. Um, you can put that in links if you like. And I really hope to get back into actually writing down some more of my nuclear and other apocalypse films and thoughts and shows and movies. Because um, I have a backlog. I've, <laughs> I have been writing as much, but I have always been just reveling in the disturbing, <laughs> miserable content. It never stops, too. Uh, you think you get, you get it and it keeps going, uh, which says something about something and We'll figure out what that is by the time this podcast is over. So thanks again, Lucy. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or you want to tell us what we got wrong, uh, either nuke-wise or uh, maybe I messed up something about bicycles and, and bicycle enthusiasts, uh, maybe I've offended you. A couple ways you can contact the show and complain. Uh, we're on Twitter at Nuclear Podcast. I've got a website supercriticalpodcast.com and we're also checking an email account supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com until next time this has been tim westmeyer lucy staggerwald and remember if it's pop culture and radioactive we are bound to get supercritical about it have a good one